We move on in Daniel today. Uh, We'll be in the first half of Daniel chapter 3. So here we have Daniel chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, uh, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is the word of the Lord. I presume that you are familiar with the story of the emperor's new clothes, uh, these 
con men, it's, it's, a, it's a Hans Christian Andersen story, these con men come to this emperor who is very fond of uh, dressing finely. Uh, it was said of him that, uh, that where you would speak of most kings and say, oh, the king is in council, this emperor, you would say, well, the emperor is in his wardrobe. Uh, he loved clothes. I can relate to that. And these con men come in and they say, we have the finest clothes available for you, O emperor. Uh, clothes so fine, so good, they can be seen only by people who are fit for the position that they're in. And so, as you will no doubt be aware, uh, they're making no clothes at all. But nobody is willing to say it. And so everybody, for pride, for fear of being found out, they don't say a word, even as they inspect the work as it is going on, uh, as the emperor then uh, makes a procession uh, in his uh, new outfit of clothes. And of course, the emperor is scared to death, knowing that he himself can't see his own clothes until a little child says, why, the emperor has nothing on at all. It's a story of... It's a story of people not being able to see things for what they really are because of what's in their hearts, because of the fears that are, is in their heart, because of the pride that's in their heart. And so they honor that which deserves no honor at all. Now, it may be true concerning the story of Nebuchadnezzar's image, it may be true that we don't have idols of gold or wood or silver or precious stones anymore, although in parts of the world they still do. So it may be true that we don't worship before images like the Babylonians, but we still do put all kinds of things in our hearts above God, don't we? And the world has no shortage of such idols. The world offers us no shortage of opportunities to count all kinds of things more valuable than God. Our very hearts are idol factories. Take a second and think back over every time you've sinned. I'll wait. I won't wait. Every time you've sinned, think about this, every time you've sinned, you have put yourself in the place of God, the one who is wise to tell yourself what is right and what is wrong, what is best for you and what is not. And, and so we can't escape idolatry. Idols are everywhere. They're outside you. They're inside you. The world puts pressure on you to give in to them. And this is slavery for idols promise everything, but they can never deliver. You want wealth, it disappears. You depend on people, they fail you. You put your trust in your self-control, you know that your self-control falters when you're tired or hungry. I could go on. So you can trust in any number of things, but they will all fail you. And yet you can't escape them. 
but they can be overcome. How? How can you overcome the idols in your life? And that's the question posed here in this text. And I think it's so interesting how this story shifts from telling us about Daniel and his life to telling us about his three friends. Let's put this in context for a second. We remember that we've got these grand visions in the second half of of Daniel. Uh, Cosmic proportions, battles between God and evil. And these visions are meant to show Daniel the context that he should put his own story into, the story that we read about in Daniel chapters 1 through 6. So these adventures of Daniel and his friends are just a part of the cosmic battle taking place. So why leave out Daniel in this chapter? I believe it's simply to show us that you don't have to be a prophet to play a meaningful part in God's plan. The only question is what part God has for you to play. And so, we will look at this story in three movements. First, how the world tends toward idolatry. Second, that the world brings pressure to enforce idolatry. And finally, that God gives strength to overcome idolatry. And so consider the scene set before us. You'll remember from the end of chapter 2 that King Nebuchadnezzar praises the true God as God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Now, we believe that some time has passed before we get to chapter 3, and it's evident that Nebuchadnezzar has not come to understand that the true God is, in fact, the only God. And so, he sets up this golden statue of enormous proportions. It's 90 feet tall. Uh, It's about as tall as the Benton County Courthouse, a relatively modest building by our standards, but in the ancient world, this is an enormous structure. Uh, If you know of the Colossus of Rhodes, constructed some centuries later, we're talking about the same sort of size here. This is not a small feat of engineering. Considerable expense went into it. And what was it? Well, we don't know for sure what exactly this was. Um, some interpreters suggest it was probably simply a golden obelisk. Uh, others think that it was perhaps a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself. And it may have been something else entirely. But it would fit with the pattern of the ancient Near East that whatever this statue was, whatever it looked like, it was erected to ascribe honor and perhaps even divinity to King Nebuchadnezzar. It would have carried inscriptions praising his royalty and his honor. Evidently, when Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, King, you're the head of gold in your dream. Well, the message went to his head. And Nebuchadnezzar embodies Nietzsche's famous question, if there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? 
For Nebuchadnezzar is not content to leave his dream in his head. He's not content to be the head of gold. So he glorifies himself by setting up this immense statue entirely of gold. And then he invites all the officials in his kingdom to a party in his honor. This is so much more than a ribbon cutting of a new playground or the dedication of a bridge. For on the plain of Dura, thousands upon thousands of people gather to dedicate the image. Gather to dedicate themselves to the glory and to the divinity of King Nebuchadnezzar who has conquered so many people. And the king even puts together an orchestra to perform a symphony dedicated to his own glory. And as one, the people fall down on their faces and worship the image. And in doing so, worship Nebuchadnezzar himself. Now Nebuchadnezzar makes it very obvious that the people are meant to worship him. But you don't need to make a statue of gold. You don't need to bow down with your body to consider something in this world more important than God. And so, the world provides no shortage of distractions from spiritual matters, from the truth of the glory of our God. We have medicine to keep our bodies healthy, Netflix to keep our minds distracted, work to give our lives a sense of purpose. The world is so full of pleasures that you can forget that it even matters at all whether God exists to begin with. And even if you turn your nose up at these distractions, scoffing at the pleasures of the distracted mind becomes an idolatry of its own. People finding their identity and meaning and minimalism filling their hearts still with themselves rather than with God. And so there may be a shortage in this world of statues of gold 90 feet tall, but there's no shortage of idols in the world or indeed in our hearts. For idolatry isn't only out there. Idolatry is in each one of us too. You know, the pomp and circumstance surrounding this ceremony should be a warning to us because it looks very religious. Even the highest blasphemy can be disguised by all the trappings of religion. It's not hard to consider that this ceremony, it wasn't just music, it wasn't just a music festival. It would have been accompanied with sacrifices and the offerings of incense. And so the casual observer might even be forgiven if they find some parallels between this ceremony and say the ceremony where David returns the ark to Jerusalem. And so we too can treasure all kinds of idols in our hearts and yet give the outward appearance of being a godly person. So in his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller, he identifies this number of deep heart idols for the modern world, all of which can easily be masked by piety. He named, I believe, 20 in his book. Well, let's put a few formulae to the test. Life only has meaning if I am loved and respected. Well, show kindness to others and get your master of divinity and you can put a veneer of godliness on this idol of approval. 
Try another one. I only have worth if people are dependent on me and need me. Well, why don't you volunteer for the church's mercy ministry or its counseling program? Life only has meaning if I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and very nice possessions. Well, maybe you can give a little above 10% each week in the offering and donate a nice baptismal font and we'll even put your name on a brass plate affixed to it. Look, I could go on, but you get the picture. We all, every one of you, has a tendency to value something over God himself. And we are all very skilled at making it look for all the world as though we love God himself above all. So what is it in your life? What is it that you yourself put above God? How are you willing to cover up these idols? What lengths will you go to to say to the world, I have no idols, I have no God but God? What price are you willing to pay to obtain these idols? Now, of course, it's not easy to identify these idols for what they are. It's not easy to avoid them. There will always be pressure to conform. It might be overt, it might be subtle, but that pressure will always be there. Now, in Nebuchadnezzar's case, it was very overt. He threatens everybody who doesn't worship with this grotesque death in the fiery furnace. If he sees you standing up at the ceremony, he has soldiers standing in the back ready to pick you up by the collar and toss you in. And what's more, the king isn't the only one interested in enforcing this worship. For we read in verse 8 that certain Chaldeans come forward and they maliciously accuse the Jews. Now what are these guys doing here? What's in it for them? Like why do they care whether the king is worshipped in the way that he demands? Well, they did have something to gain. I'm sure it stuck in their craw that these foreigners were in such high positions and perhaps they envied them, sought position for themselves. Especially over something that would have seemed so small to them. For most people, worshiping another deity was not a big deal. Uh, Most people believed that there was a multitude of gods in competition with one another. And Look, it's obvious that Nebuchadnezzar and his God must be the greatest, the most important, the biggest, and the most powerful, considering all the peoples that Nebuchadnezzar has conquered along with their gods. It's just an acknowledgement of the facts before you. So why not give in? Why not bow down? It makes no sense not to, right? But this was a program that the Jewish people could not agree with, for they knew that their God was the one true God. And yet the world must enforce its idolatry. And so these Chaldeans come forward to accuse Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They charge these faithful men with insubordination. For not only do they refuse to serve the king's gods or worship his image, but they pay no attention to the king. 
We know this isn't true. I mean, these three Hebrew friends haven't risen in the administration by thumbing their nose at the king. But that's the diabolical nature of the world's pressure to force conformity. And so the death of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego means nothing to them. For they will lie about them to get their way. And so the king who has been happy with their service until now explodes into rage and he makes them an offer they can't refuse. Bow down or be burned to a crisp. And this is what the world offers to every one of you. It's an offer you can't refuse. Compromise a little bit on ethics, you can have more money. Be a nice guy even when it means you never speak up for the truth. Office life will go smoothly if you do. Live a private life. No one nosing around about you and you nosing around over, no, you nosing around about no one. Well, that's a neighborhood the HOA never has to worry about. But that's to say nothing of the persecution faced by our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world at other t- times in history. It's taken tremendous courage for our brothers and sisters to resist the call of the world to idolatry. To resist putting other things above God. And so many of the people we encounter in the life to come will have their stories of ostracism, torture, and even death at the hands of God's enemies. And the world, yes, the world will indeed find its ways to encourage you to put other things ahead of God, but it's not that the world needs to help in this. For our hearts are idle factories in and of themselves, and at times even our churches sometimes take part, don't we? Do you love your theology more than God? Or does your theology teach you to love God himself? But either way, whatever the answer is, it's the theologians among us who often command the most respect. Or do you love to be recognized for the good service you do? And I'm not exempt from this either. You know, with every sermon I write, I fight that desire to be seen as clever. I struggle. I struggle to know what to say sometimes because the message is so simple. So there are pressures to conform to idolatry within us and outside us. And yet God's people are able to resist idolatry and give glory to God. For Nebuchadnezzar challenges Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Well, they have one. They have a God who is able to deliver them out of his hands, whether he knows it or not. And so, without a word indicating fear or hesitation, the reply of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is simple. We have no need to answer you in this matter. For the true God is not an interesting discussion point. He is not someone simply to be debated or to be put out there in an argument. He is not someone for Nebuchadnezzar to consider at a distance. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know that their answer to the king isn't what matters anyway. 
For their God is a God of action. And He is able to rescue them, even against this mighty King. And yet, at the same time, these friends submit to the Lord's own wisdom, to His own will as to their final fate. And they will remain faithful to the Lord who has been good to them, no matter what. For they trust God Himself rather than the deliverance that He will choose to provide or not according to His holy will. And this is a sentiment we see echoed throughout Scripture by God's other faithful people like Paul saying, Now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. Or as Job says, Though He slay me, I will hope in Him. And I can't fail to observe here the contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Jesus. For Nebuchadnezzar glorified himself by erecting an enormous monument to his honor and demanding worship. But how different was Jesus in his temptations in the wilderness? He was tempted to glorify himself the way that earthly kings might. Satan suggested he'd miraculously turn a stone into bread, but Jesus chose to live by the word of God. Satan offered Jesus the kingdoms of the world if he would just worship Satan. But Jesus refused to worship anybody but the true Lord. And when Satan took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple to throw himself down and be rescued by the angels in front of a gathered crowd, Jesus refused to put his father to the test. So Jesus did not glorify himself the way that the world teaches us to be glorified. And so Jesus had the courage and the strength to stand up to the enemy himself. And he emerged victorious. And yet how much greater was his glory when he went to the cross. He went to the cross to die for you and me. And in his death and in his coming to life again, he defeated sin and death. This is how he glorified himself. By coming to die. And for you, if you trust in him, if you trust that this sacrifice alone is able to make you right before God, you are free from sin. You are free from idolatry. And death has no power over you. You have nothing to fear because you will live and you will live with Him forever. And even when you fall short, and I promise you that you will fall short, you remain united to Christ. And so all that is true of Him remains true of you as Paul writes, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And so even if for a moment you follow an idol rather than God, He sees you clothed in Jesus' righteousness. And He restores you. And He will train you to trust in Him all the more. But He won't ask you to do it by your strength because you have no strength to give. For He gives you His strength. He gave strength to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they defied the king to honor God. They did not put their trust in themselves to be delivered. 
their trust was in God and God alone. He gives you, too, the strength to overcome the idols in your life. He gives you strength to overcome the idols the world presents to you. And how is this done? The Apostle John writes, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. This faith overcomes the world. This is the faith that enabled Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to overcome the pressure of the world. Whether in life or death, they overcame by faith and confidence in God. And they had already demonstrated this faith way back in chapter 1 when they refused the king's food and trusted God for their fate. And Hebrews 11 credits this faith as quenching the power of fire. Although that's a conclusion to the story we'll come to next time. You, when you have faith, when you believe that Jesus Christ is the conquering Son of God, He gives you strength to give up those idols and to trust in Him alone. And I see another contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Jesus. For Nebuchadnezzar never offered anything to those who obeyed. But when you have faith in Christ, He richly blesses you far beyond anything that your heart's idols can offer or follow through on. Do you long to be loved? If you believe in Christ, God adopts you into his family and he will never let you go. Do you find security in being needed? God doesn't need you for anything. And yet he will never leave you or forsake you. Do you desire possessions? God offers you treasure in heaven that cannot be taken away from you by thieves or a recession or by the stock market. And yet He offers you even so much more than this, for He offers you everything. He makes you an heir of all that God has to offer. And in the life to come, the world will be yours. A world free of tears, free of sorrow, free of sickness. There will be no more dying. There will be pure fellowship in the love of the saints. And in this life, he offers you freedom, true freedom. Freedom from the idolatrous desires that enslave you. Freedom from the idolatrous desires that shackle you to people and things that will fail you. Freedom from slavery to sin and slavery to death. And he tears down the idols in his heart, in your heart. And he gives you his very self. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that by your strength we overcome idols. We overcome idols and you give us yourself. And we await that day when Christ returns in glory. 
We look forward to the day when there will be no more sorrows, no more tears, no more dying. And we pray that by your strength, we would indeed live in this life according to all that you have to offer us in the life to come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.